This week, I've got Caleb Wojcik on the podcast who runs a video production company and also makes YouTube videos and courses about making videos. And I've been watching his stuff for like, you know, great gear reviews and technique. And thanks for coming, Caleb. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's exciting to talk to you after being a fan of the show. And I think the first time I saw you was an iPhone review or something like that. One of your bigger ones that maybe popped, I would say, was the first time. Yeah, in the last year or two. It seems likely. Usually how people see me the first time. Yeah, iPhone's a good entry point. No, I just I did really enjoy your style. I really like how thoughtful you are and how not hypey you are and that you are a working pro, like that you do photography for a living. And so I've always just enjoyed your content from that perspective because you're not just trying to make videos as quickly as possible about the newest product. So it just, it's great to talk to you. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I owe it to people that came before me. Like one person who kind of influenced me in, in wanting to do things the way I do is Alex Lindsay, who is on Mac break weekly, but I've always been frustrated that he doesn't do his own production shows. Like he doesn't have a podcast where he's just like talking about cameras and talking about his gear and how he gets things done. That can be so insanely helpful for me. Another one is Red. Oh, was that a podcast that doesn't happen anymore? So it's not worth naming it because you can't go listen to it. The guys that do the VFX educational. Anyway, the podcast is gone, but like there's these people that do like real production and they just talk over my head sometimes. And I find that really helpful when people like start using words that I haven't heard before and I'm like Googling it while they're talking. I don't know. I'm trying to hopefully strike some kind of balance between that and and still maybe making sense. Well, I I think there is that balance because as you progress in a skill, in a career, basically, when people start to talk or have conversations or you're trying to learn something new, you kind of have to consume things where 80 to 90% of it you already know. So it might be like reinforcing Mm -hmm. what you know about lighting or audio equipment or something like that. But then you're you're looking, you're on a search for that last five to ten percent that you don't know oh, that yeah. can that can help you. So I think that as you just get better at something, that becomes you're consuming things trying to learn, but only a small portion of that is actually helpful. Oh, for sure. I mean I still will sit down and you know either buy a course or watch uh, an hour long YouTube video for that hoping for that one moment where I'm like, I didn't know that. And then I can apply it to everything that I do. And it changes your, your whole workflow. And as you have been doing it longer and longer, those moments come less often, but they're so satisfying when they do, you know, for sure. And because I like video production, I like editing. I like photo. I I consume that kind of stuff. So I consume videos and podcasts from my peers and people I look up to and watching things on masterclass and, you know, like trying to just pull little tidbits of things out because I didn't go to school to study film production. I didn't go to film school. So I've been self-learned through the internet. So I'm used to learning that way. And so I still continue to consume stuff to try to learn things, even if I know most of the stuff. And so it's just like pulling out little tidbits. Well, a great place to start would be if you could like fill in some more details about what it is that you do, you know, because I, I only see what comes out publicly, which is, you know, what you talk about on YouTube. And I know you do a lot more than camera review. So in running a production company, like what kind of videos are you producing and what kind of gear are you using? Like just some, kind of some like 
how do you work? What's your work life like? Yeah, so before I started my video production company, I worked at a startup that made online courses, basically, and did a lot of multi-camera interviews with entrepreneurs. So we were teaching online entrepreneurship, how to start a blog, how to grow an audience, how to make a living doing that. And so those are the types of videos I started making for other people uh, four years ago when I started my video production company, which was filming online courses, filming YouTube videos. And then I eventually started to be able to do things other than that, make documentaries for a company about their customers and how they use the tool that they their company makes or what have you. So it's it's a broad range of kind of talking head is what I usually call it, like YouTube style, online courses, sales videos, launch videos, things like that. And then also I get to do some documentary stuff or more commercial stuff from time to time too. Cool. So part of what I wanted to bring in to talk about, aside from gear, I mean, gear just happens because you can't help it. But just some of the ins and outs of what it's like to run, you know, specifically a freelance video production company, but generally, you know, moving into a freelance world of doing something creative. And especially for you, you know, coming from a bit more of a corporate background, a bit more of a standard job, and then jumping into the wider world of whatever, whatever it is that's happening here. I don't know. I just want to see what we can learn from each other about how to successfully run a business and like what's what's hard about it that people may not know. I mean, like that that would be actually like a great place to start is on the hard end because w- when I hear people get excited about getting a creative job, I've let myself take on the role of saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa. Take a minute, think about it, make sure that you are going to be able to follow through with this." And there's a lot of people saying follow your dreams. So sometimes I'm okay being the one saying Make sure you're ready to do that. So, like, as as you made that jump, what did like what, what was the big moment where maybe you felt like this isn't going to work? And then, like, how did that turn into working? I mean, I tried I tried other things first. You know, like that was going from my corporate job at Boeing when I graduated college. That was my first job, and I worked in a cubicle and did financial forecasting and stuff like that. Going from that to running my own business now has been a journey for sure. And so I started a blog. Like that was the first thing I did talking about personal finance. And then eventually that led to working for a blogger because he needed someone to help him. And I bought one of his online courses, took it really seriously, got to know him, and then started working for a blogger. And I did that for a few years. And while I was working for him, I built up video skills and I also built up a network of all these people that needed video. And so, like you're saying, knowing you want to do something creative full-time as a job, it's definitely the first step. But I think patience is probably one of the hardest things of being like, I know what I want to be doing. I know I want to make money from my camera full-time, but I don't know how to get there. And being patient that like this is a process growing your network to find clients growing your skills to a level where you're good enough that someone's going to pay you and finding your niche and that takes time and so i think it's just being patient which might mean keeping your job like keeping a regular job or mm. going to part time and still having income coming in cuz patience would be hard and then sometimes money stops when you when you don't have a regular paycheck and you're just waiting for that next client and 
So having a day job or having a side job is is helpful just to like bridge those gaps financially. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that maybe having somewhat of a financial background was helpful in running your own business as well. I mean, just speaking from my side, I'm incredibly fortunate to have a wife whose background is in accounting. So yeah, my wife, Anya, is the other half of uh, our business. She is the business <laughs> of our business. And, uh, you know, because I was doing this before we met as well, but it's definitely since we started running it together that it was able to like really grow and for one thing, become more profitable when I was doing it myself. And I think this is pretty common is creatives hate looking at numbers. Like I, I get so much anxiety and stress when I need to deal with my invoicing and accounting. And I know that they're important and I try to be super responsible with it, but I hate it. Like I can't, I've never stopped having the stress around it. And so having somebody else that I'm working with, that's like just super comfortable with it and always on the, on the ball is incredibly helpful. So, I mean, I always think that if people are completely just focused on like, I just want to be creative and be able to do it full time. If you don't at some point find some discipline to do these hard things, it may be very challenging for you to make that a reality. Yeah. And I think I take it for granted because I, I had two undergrad bachelor's degrees and one was like a creative kind of digital media thing and one was in the business school. And so I would on a day-to-day basis when I was in college go to a class in the morning that was accounting or financial related or supply chain or something like that. And then in the afternoon I would go like edit a video because I had these two majors. Thinking back now that that was – 10 plus years ago when I was doing that on a, on a day, it's like, that's what I do now. Like I'm doing cash flow analysis to see if we're going to like be okay in a few months based on when client payments are coming in. And then I have to open up premiere and like revise a video for a client. And so I think those are both really important parts. And if you're going to run it by yourself, then you got to focus on both of those things. I think, I think, being married to someone that has strengths in either is great. Like my wife is a photographer and she built up her wedding photography and portrait business. But like I was helping with the financial part because that was my background. And she was like you, she like didn't want to do it. She's like, like, don't, don't tell me, I don't care. Like just, I just want to take photos and edit them and like interact with the client. I don't want to figure out the money part. So I think it helps to focus on maybe whatever you're weakest at. Maybe you are a little more analytical and business-based or that sort of thing, and maybe you should focus on the creative part, or maybe you're really creative and you need to focus on the business side or find a partner or someone else that can help you with that. Yeah, I, I hope there's one person listening that we could get through that's get through to that is, you know, maybe you just started art school and like you're uh, all ready to start creating your creativity because you just hate that standard nine to five and uh, the idea of being tied down like that really stresses you out. I just, I so want that person to take it very seriously that like, if you don't at some point start thinking about your, your business life and your financial life, those dreams may not come true or they may become so incredibly stressful that you end up quitting. And, you know, like there's so many people that I remember being in, in arts. So I wasn't in art school. I was in like a technical college and the art school was right next door. So I'd hang out with art school kids. And there's a lot of people that end up there because they were stressed out by 
other jobs, any other career path was like, this just feels wrong to me. It doesn't make me happy. I want to be creating. So it can become a bit of an escape to just be creating all the time. But if you don't at some point do the hard work of learning how to make that profitable, it, then maybe you should just be letting it stay a hobby. If you're not willing to lay that business groundwork, it may be more stre- trouble than it's worth because like, it can totally burn you out having your favorite thing become what you're dependent on to pay your bills. You know, it can make you start to hate your camera. You want to ruin a, a hobby or something you enjoy. People always say, like, <laughs> turn it into a business, and then it becomes not, totally. not fun. So if if the money part is going to stress you out because that's that's the thing you're not good at or that's the thing you don't have a handle on, like if you have a bunch of debt, that's just going to put more stress on you creatively to not be able to do the things you want to do with your camera or with your art or what you're trying to make. So. Like it was an important step for me to stay in my day job until I paid off my student loans. Like I paid off about thirty thousand dollars of student loans while I had my day job. Oof, and very responsible. That took yeah. me years to do. And then from there I felt like I could take the risk of quitting my day job to go work for a blogger, which going from a company of hundred and fifty thousand to a company of two people, you know, that that was a risk. But because I paid off debt it enabled me to do that. And so I think that sometimes you have to suck it up a little bit and you have to get your money right because then you open up, you know, then you have a little bit more freedom and flexibility to do what you want to do creatively. Yeah, I'm really not risk averse. I mean, in in big picture ways compared to some people obviously I am, but I think it's just it's just hard to balance the amount of advice online that's like just go do whatever you're dreaming mm-hmm. of. So, uh, it's I'm, I just kind of want to Sometimes be that other side of like, you really probably can go have a creative life. Like we're in the time where all the things that you hear from, you know, motivational, whoever that you're following, uh, you know, Gary, choose your Gary V flavor. A lot of that stuff's really true. Like you really can just go get a creative job. But, 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 right? Like there's all these things that you need to meet these requirements first. And if, and there's so many other people out there that are going to have the same skills as you and if a few of them are more disciplined, they're going to end up getting those jobs. So <laughs> I just like so want everybody to be as realistic as possible before they dive into this stuff. Yeah, and I think a, a perfect way to do that is to work for somebody else doing the thing first. So instead of quitting a job completely unrelated to what you're doing or quitting college or what have you, don't do that until maybe you can get a job working for someone else. So like if you want to be a wedding photographer, go second shoot for other wedding mm, photographers. Totally. If you want to do video for a living, then maybe try to find a job at a company where you can do 30% of your job as video or something and or 50 or 100% and like kind of slowly work your way towards doing something. I think the drastic oh, I'm going to quit my job or I'm going to follow my passion or I'm going to travel the world like if you can do that and you're risky and it could work out for you, that's amazing. I am not that. I'm like a calculated person. I got my bachelor's degree because my school ranked number one in supply chain management in the country. And I knew that companies were coming to the career fair looking for that major. And if I could get good grades, I would get a job. Like that was how I chose my major in college. That's how I think. And so quitting a job or 
doing something with not having a plan is not something that I would do. And so I kind of just recommend that people slowly move towards where they're going instead of feeling like I have to do this immediately. I have to like quit my job right now. And like you see other people online growing a following or doing the thing you want to do. And I think, I think patience is a powerful skill to have as a creative and just as a, as a human. Yeah. I'm so grateful that I worked at real companies before striking out on my own because of just the stuff I learned there about like project management, like what is project management? You know, like what's a, what's a waterfall? What's a, what's Slack? Yeah. I mean, just like figuring out these different methods of, you know, oh man, if I, if I need to get a whole bunch of stuff done, I could use Kanban and not forget about it and not like lose track of all these different items. Like there's, there's just all these little tools that just by being surrounded by other people that are already doing this, when you start, they're already producing stuff and having regular output output and they need to be super accountable. I just, so many things that I picked up that, you know, I don't need to apply them in the same way now because there's less of us, right? We're a team of two most of the time, but the workflow stuff just, it's really hard to learn it in reverse, you know, being freelance, being on your own, so much harder to pick this stuff up than being in a bigger team. So, you know, I I think it's a fantastic way to to get started is in some kind of team environment for sure. where yeah. some of the skills will be applicable. Yeah, and for me, looking back as 10 years out of college kind of person, thinking back to my work ethic in college, if I tried to start a business when I was in college, I the, like the amount of hours I actually put into doing homework when I could have been building a business or something, but instead I was playing online poker or Halo or Guitar Hero or <laughs> watching Lost yeah. or whatever, whatever what I was doing back from like 2004 to 2008. I kind of had to go into a stuffy corporate job to like not whip me into shape because like I got good grades. I was in honors college, like that kind of thing. But like I only worked as hard as I needed to. And once I got into a job that I didn't really care for. I started to just figure out how can I do my job in half the time so that the other half of the time at my job, I can learn a new skill or I can learn about personal finance or learn about entrepreneurship or blogging or what have you. And so I, th- I feel like it whipped me into shape being in like a more stuffy, rigid kind of environment where, yeah, I learned how to use Microsoft Project and make Gantt charts for my team and things like that and read Getting Things Done by David Allen and like started to think about productivity and how I could just like Ugh, I, be a better worker. I could worker. never finish Getting Things Done and I always wished I could apply it to my so you So you need a book I, to teach you how to get that book done. Yeah, Getting Books Done. <laughs> That's what you need. <laughs> by Tyler Stallman. By Tyler Stallman, yeah. Yeah, but just like being being pro, like – taking charge of what you need to do on a day-to-day basis of like, yeah, you should properly file your business with the government and pay your taxes and do accounting and like those types of things I was not prepared to do as someone that graduated college. Like that's not what college prepared me to do. It prepared me to like procrastinate and cram before a test and do the minimum amount of work. But when you run your own business, that's not how you survive. All right. Well, n- now that we've made everybody feel 
really bad about not trying hard enough. Or uh, what's the reverse of a like a motivational speaker? Because I feel like that's what I'm <laughs> un- doing right now. Uninspirational. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah. Okay, okay. I think hopefully we've drilled the point. For home. sure. Let's maybe talk about what it's actually like to run mm-hmm. a video business. Oh, so I keep trickling out little bits of like, here's what I actually do in various podcast episodes because it's always challenging to describe. But we we kind of run like we call it like a general production company where it's often equal parts photography and video. So for the the video part, uh, just last week was a good example of it. We were doing actual client work, which was for a hotel chain and we're like shooting web commercials. So there's actors and models on site. Photos and videos are being taken at the same time. We were the video team. And basically then in the end, we edit it like we do all of the whole production ourselves and send it to the client at the end, and they kind of do what they want with it. But, you know, usually we're doing direct client. We're not working through agencies, which is another thing to be aware of if you're considering starting a video business. Is it, it can be very different if you are doing direct client versus through an agency. Uh, for this, we were hired through the producer, who we work with on other things. and But we also were a small enough team that, like, there wasn't really a division of, like, director, cinematographer, it was much more like there was photographer, video <laughs> producer, and um, that's sort of like it was a representative job of the kinds of things that we do. So it's smaller scale. Uh, things to know about like smaller scale jobs like that is that I, I think also you can find a higher margin in it in uh, bigger productions with bigger budgets the margins can start to slim out a bit because a, a lot more of the money starts going to say rentals craft services and uh you know that you have three people running your camera so yeah in the the video side of things we do that's how we typically work how 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 does that compare to what you know mine's pretty similar because you know i say video production company because i don't know really know of a better way to say it like i'm not a filmmaker because i don't feel like i make films and i don't want to say videographer because that's like the guy that sets the tripod up at the wedding and lets it run for an hour and gives you the video so it's like and I'm not a cinematographer because I'm not Deacons. So it's like, what do I call myself? And so I usually just say video, run a video production company. And a lot of the times that's me by myself schlepping all the gear, setting it up, filming everything, tearing it down, backing up the memory cards. Like <laughs> I'm all the jobs that the credits scroll through at the end of the movie. But I do have uh, – I have an editor, a full-time editor that's on my team as well that I kind of built up into – starting with like hiring him for certain jobs and then he was part-time and now he's full-time and it's been full-time for a couple of years now. But that is my quote video production company. And like you said about margins, it's actually more profitable to, to be lean, to not have a bunch of staff. And where that comes into play is you can increase your prices and your profit margin just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. As opposed to if you increase your production size, like you said, you're going to need to rent cameras. You're going to have lighting people there. You're going to have just a bigger team. So not to say I don't want to work on those projects or you know, work on a grander scale, but it's, it's a sweet spot to have a one- to two-person team make videos for bigger brands that have bigger budgets and be able to achieve the quality that they want. And I feel like mm-hmm. nowadays, as technology, as cameras, as computers and everything is getting better and better like you can achieve that by yourself now which i think is is amazing and so like i think the more people that can do that 
it not only frees up the like more people going to be interested in hiring that, but I think it's just making more independent business owners, which I think is just better for the economy in general. So yeah, that's that's kind of what I do is run and gun a lot by myself. I'll hire contractors if it's a bigger production, but try to keep my in-house team pretty small. Yeah, I think it's it's a non-obvious thing from the outside. Like before you've started doing it, it can be really appealing to be aiming for uh, I don't, you know, a tradi- I'll call it a traditional filmmaking situation. Recently, Nick Thomas was on the podcast as well, and he's a le- legitimate cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Like the the word DP very much applies for him. He should be union any day now. Super skilled, and I'm always jealous of what he shoots. It's it's always so beautiful and so well done for sure. Yeah, when you watch their their Vimeo ch- like highlight reel from from the year or you know like their dp <laughs> yeah. reel each year or the, the stills they post on instagram or something from their projects you're definitely jealous and it's like man that person did that thing but then i think like but there there was probably a crew there that like helped them achieve yeah. that and totally and i don't have that and so like <laughs> that's why my stuff maybe yeah. doesn't look as good as like i had to do it by myself yeah it's it's a really huge challenge to kind of bridge that gap and so uh, I'll, I'll circle back to this later. I have some things to say about cameras. So remind me to talk okay. about Alexas. But uh, so Nick came over the other day, just yesterday, and we were shooting just, we, we just wanted to kind of play around. Uh, I'm going to make a YouTube video about what we did and he's going to make it a little short, but it was so interesting kind of watching our two production methods collide because he, for him, he's doing a very small, this is like, this is for fun. Nobody's getting paid. We're just like making a thing. But still, the amount of gear that he had to haul in, he had to hire an assistant or bring in an assistant to, you know, be first AC and just move everything. And the, yeah, just the, the weight of the kit is incredible. There is so much stuff. I'm looking at it, I'm kind of aware. I, I know that it's like this, but looking at it, I'm like, how could I get anything done if I had to use this much stuff all the time? But the results are, are, are fantastic. They're so beautiful. But, it means that if a client is going to hire you for that, they can't just hire you. They have to hire a few more people. They have to be willing to pay for your kit. So, you know, in his case, he's got an Aria Alexa, an extremely expensive camera, which is going to cost the client quite a bit to hire him out. Uh, and, you know, they get their money's worth, but it restricts the amount of clients that are are willing to do that, or even clients that are are willing to do that on certain projects, like maybe for their TV spots, they'll hire a, a true DP, a, a true talent like like Nick Thomas. And then, you know, for their web spots, they'll hire you or I that uh, the, the total budget's going to be much, much less. But in, in general, like if you kind of look at the numbers, like let's say, let's say we're doing a $10,000 job, right? Like you or mm-hmm. I, the client is often, they could look at the difference between a real cinematographer's real and say like, okay, I'm willing to spend five more thousand dollars to get it to that next level. It does look better. Um, you know, they're spending 50% more, but now all of a sudden that's going to need to be sliced between so many people. Like that really starts to get spread thin quickly. Whereas for us, however much work we're putting into it, it's like, well, I guess we're just going to have to work that much more, <laughs> that many more yeah. hours and like, you know, kind of stress ourselves out that much more. But it's still, uh, we're able to, you know, keep, keep that in within our business. And I think the that it's only been possible to do this recently because of the technology and the advancements of things. And I would be curious to hear what 
what tools or what things you think have enabled people to to do that now? Like are oh, are gimbals sure. one of those things or are mm-hmm. just like resolution increases in cameras or I don't know. What what would you think has enabled like one man bands or like small teams to do the things that can look almost as good as Hollywood or television? I mean, I'm going to go back even one step further because I got to see this evolve in photography. I started at iStock Photo as a web designer right as iStock was, they had just invented the idea of microstock. And uh, if you don't kind of know the history of stock photography, it was like seven or eight years before that, that Getty really disrupted everything with stock photography, period. Because stock photography is a new idea. The idea that you're going to buy something that was already shot for relatively cheap and just insert it into your footage. Getty like brought this to the mainstream and made it super accessible. Then iStock Photo make it, made it super cheap. I mean, at first it was free, uh, and then it became like 10 cents, 25 cents, a dollar, and you know, up to whatever the pricing is now. So I was there right at the beginning, and I am one of those people that got my career because the gear got cheaper and it got better real fast, like right as I was coming out of college, I couldn't have built this career shooting film. I mean, now, right? Like I would have to be 30 or 40 years old to start making it a real living. Um, Whereas these days you can do it full time, you know, right out of college. Like as soon as you have the portfolio, as soon as you have made enough contacts, you can start turning it into a job. And in the past, you just had to work for it. So anyway, what what I saw happening with photography was just as noise comes down, that was a big struggle at first. And full frame coming to the mass market with the first 5D, I think that was like a giant Mm -hmm. step. With with 5D Mark I, all of a sudden it could look as good as what the pros were doing on the film side. Then the huge step in the video world was 5D Mark II. I mean, I still remember seeing that footage for the first time and I, I just kind of couldn't believe it. I was like, am I really... Reverie? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, totally. Like, the, the seeing that first short was like, wait a minute. This is a, this is a commercial. <laughs> it was, this is a perfume commercial. And it was not shot on a, a real camera? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, it, I think it blew all of our minds to see what Vincent Lafferay could do with that. But yeah, like, the noise floor went way down. We got shallow depth of field. All these things got so good so fast. I was just going to say, I think that just the timing of all of this right now is like a confluence of like internet speeds and camera technology and all this stuff that's enabled people to make a living doing YouTube and to do client work and stuff like that. Cause I think it was Dan Mace made a video about what it would have been like to vlog in the nineties or something. Have you seen this video? <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Genius link in the show notes. Yeah. He's like pushing a shopping cart around with like a beige desktop PC and like a, a handy cam, you know, like, so it's this confluence of all these technological achievements of people having phones in their pocket to watch the video at the internet speed. You know, it's just like all these things at the same time that's kind of led us to this kind of creator, creative revolution of people being able to make money from making videos, making podcasts and everything. So I think it's just it's the time to kind of ride that wave and to continue to to take advantage of the tools and to make a living doing this kind of thing. Totally. And it's not just on the production side because like you're saying, the audience, the distribution 
changed, just happened to change at the exact same time in enormous ways. So in the photography example, all of a sudden there is, there is the internet and everybody has a website. And now all of a sudden you don't just need to buy 10 photos a year for the one brochure that you put out and the one poster. Now you need photos for your blog every single day. And then, you know, in 20, I don't know what year, 2012, you need to start posting to your Instagram every single day. And, and so now you need like social photos and the amount of content that can be pushed out has just totally skyrocketed. So now that we're getting to talking about the present day and, and video, people, brands being able to just speak directly to the audience through super high quality, very well produced videos. I mean, I don't know. I feel like I'm saying very obvious things here, but it still blows my mind. I mean, like, I don't want to take it for granted. I always want to be excited by that type of distribution and that type of like, let's remember how insanely interesting this time is and just how powerful it still is. I, I never want to take that for granted. And I think to loop it back to the business part, it's like there are so much opportunity and need for photo and video related content, for lack of a better word, because people want to post about it. They want to have social content. They have advertising they need to run. They have all, all the, the places where photo and video stuff goes. Every business wants that, and they need it on a consistent basis now. And so that's an opportunity for you to get really good at one of those things, photo or video or both or what have you, niche down into a kind of it. So if that's food photography or commercial videos for bigger clients or whatever it is, like I think that that goes back to what we were talking about earlier of getting getting your money right. It's also like choosing who you're going to work for and choosing who you're going to target. And for me, I ended up working with and still work with a lot of bloggers and podcasters and online entrepreneurs and people with online courses and things like that because that was my existing network of people that I knew from my previous job. Like, I don't know how you started getting some of your first clients leaving iStock and stuff like that, but it was from the network I built already, like in the past. So when people ask me, how do you get clients? It's like, well, what have you been doing for the last two to three years? That's where you get them. That's your network. Yeah, go talk to them. Yeah, that's the people you know and can trust you and you can convince them that you know what you're doing with with a camera. So it's it's hard to say like, okay, now spend two to three years doing something that you then ha- get clients from. But I think mm-hmm. from this moment, you can look back and see your connections or your specialties and that helps you. So I think it's just all comes together like that. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the perfect companion to your video business. But like seriously, before I had a good source for stock music, it was a constant frustration. Like I'd either have to try to talk the client into wrangling up, you know, a pretty big budget for licensing a single song. Cause that's the way that it was for a long time. You know, there, there were good stock music sites out there, but you had to pay for them substantially. Like it, it could be a, a big chunk of your budget just to get a song that you liked in there. Now with Epidemic Sound, it's just a simple subscription with an all you can eat business model where you can basically take all the songs and sound effects that you could possibly need and just keep taking them as long as your subscription is active and use them for all your clients. It is so incredibly powerful and very affordable too. But wait, you say, I've seen that business model before too. Yes, it's true. There were other subscription services, 
but they didn't sound very good. They sounded kind of terrible. That's a big challenge too. It's like, you don't want it to sound like stock music. You want it to feel like real music coming from real musicians. And Epidemic Sound has a lot of that in the collection. I've been really happy with what they have. Uh, You can find things in any number of genres. I like to try to reach out to some of the slightly more obscure genres. I know that EDM is quite popular on YouTube and you're going to find lots of it there. But I like to I like to try to mix it up and make it feel a little more old school cinematic. So if this sounds like something that might help your video business or even your video hobby, then uh, the easiest way is to go into the show notes and click the link to Epidemic Sound, or you can type in this relatively long URL, share.epidemicsound.com slash Stallman Podcast. And I really appreciate you using that URL so that they know that you came from here. Thanks again to Epidemic Sound for supporting the show. I don't want to have steered you too far away from gear because you you tried to ask me about it and I definitely want to talk about it. So let's maybe no, yeah, play for sure. a, a little scenario game of let's like let's try to build out three kits for somebody that is just starting, somebody that's you know starting to grow their business, and somebody that's kind of you know where we are. Like what's kind of the the goal dream kit for a small independent film production company? Let's let's start at the bottom. What do you feel like? the minimum kit is to actually charge people money for a video. I know everyone says that you can film videos on your phone and take photos with your phone. But like I I've yet to hear of someone that get like does client work with a phone. Yeah. That's that not a stunt. You know, that's mm-hmm. not like Steven Soderbergh making a movie that's on the phone, you know, like just to do it. So, so past phone, like I just wanted to like say that because I feel like, that's, that's an argument that like you can do it on your phone. Yes, you can. But if someone's paying you, you should probably shoot on something better than your phone. And, and it should also be something that doesn't look consumer. I think that that's, that's an important distinction too. the perception of you coming to do something for someone. But there's plenty of opportunities to use like small Fuji cameras or something like that, that take amazing photos now. So to say that you need a big camera or a DSLR or something like that has changeable lenses and things like that, I don't think you necessarily need. But what kind of budget are you thinking here for like this starting out person? Well, that's part of the question is like, what should your budget be? And I, I want to, I've, I've mentioned this link before, but I'm going to put it in show notes again because everybody must watch it. Uh, Sandwich Video, which is my like favorite video production company did this awesome piece where they shot three versions of the same commercial for I think it's a hundred dollars a thousand dollars and no wait a thousand one thousand dollars ten thousand yeah and it is so useful to watch first of all because they made a great video on an iPhone this is the only good ad shot on an iPhone I've ever seen <laughs> but yeah I don't want to like describing stuff you're not looking at's boring so just click the link in the video but. Okay, let's figure it out. What should the budget be? Like you are, you know, you still have a part-time job that you're making your money at, but you're like, okay, I understand the basics of video and I've shot some things on my phone that turned out pretty good. So I think if I get something a little bigger, I could maybe start charging people money for it. I'm going to here, I'm going to, in my head first, I'll think, I'm going to throw a number out there. I think you probably need to spend $3,000. What do you think? 3000 to get a beginner kit for photo and video? No, just video. Just video? Yeah, I mean, you could probably get away with 1500 but you're probably going to have to skimp in one of the three main categories, either camera, lighting, or audio. And so... Mm. Oh, I was leaving. I wasn't even thinking about lighting. Yeah, so yeah, I, totally. I think you could get yeah. started for 
1500 to 2000 if you took your audio gear seriously and your camera and you might just have to shoot with daylight <laughs> like that's kind of where you'd be yeah well okay and that's that's possible like there are types of of videos you could do if you have a, like a camera in mind i don't i don't pay as close of attention to the bottom of the uh, price lines anymore just cuz i'm not shopping for it like i'm always googling whatever it is i might buy next so i don't have a lot of awareness do you, do you have a recommendation i mean used to be a good place to start yeah i mean used for sure like the previous generation is where i would go like i would not buy something that came out within the last year if i was mm-hmm. if i was starting out if i was a beginner if i was on a budget like stuff is exponentially getting so much better each year that last year's stuff is still great like personally my wife still shoots on a 5d mark three which came out in 2011 and yeah great camera we've had it for almost eight years now it has hundreds of thousands of you know shutter count on it and it still works but it's still a 24 megapixel camera i think yeah that that's still all you need right and so thinking through that where it's like oh should i get like a a 5d mark four or should i get the new eos r if i'm a beginner and it's like go buy something on ebay that's been out for six years because sure. there are plenty of people that always upgrade or always get the latest stuff. And so that's where I would start for sure is pick your dream camera and then get the previous like model of it. Don't get a 1DX Mark II, get a 1DX or something. You know, like Go back a generation and deal with it until you can afford the, the better one. I do have some friends that are better photographers than you and me. They're incredibly talented. And uh, Will Koshenway. Who, uh, they've been on my other podcast. Still shoot the five D Mark II, just because they're like, we don't need, we don't need more. Like it's the sensor's great, and we don't use the fancy autofocus stuff. Like they're, you know, still kind of shoot it like film, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter. It really looks. You would never wonder, like, oh, is this shot on an older camera? It looks amazing. It, 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 it's not that important. Just get something decent. Yeah, and my wife also does shoot film a lot for for weddings, and so she's matching to that. But it's, it's it's funny because my wife doesn't care about gear at all. So she could care less how many megapixels something has. And I think part of it comes from she shoots film and gets scans that are JPEGs. So it's like right. she could care less about that it's a raw photo on a Canon camera. And yes, she shoots in raw and edits in raw. So there's more latitude and everything. But I, I always laugh because it's like well, you're getting like a 12 megapixel JPEG back from the lab. So like... You don't care about a Hasselblad 100 megapixel camera that's $25,000. But I do because I'm interested in, in, in tech and <laughs> I want to see. And, and I, I love more resolution and, and clarity in my photos. But I, I think that's just an important lesson of like, where is this photo going to end up? If it's going to end up on Instagram, you probably don't need an A7R3 with 40 plus megapixels. So uh, what else are we going to look at? We need a mic. Mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a specific recommendation just because of lately what I've been enjoying is the Deity V... I always get the name wrong. It's a little little too long. Deity V-Mic D3 Pro. Mm-hmm. Hopefully I said that right. So they're a spinoff from Aperture and it's very reasonably priced and sounds close enough to the Rode VideoMic Pro Plus, which is... That's kind of my primary one. That's the like everything camera uh, mic that I really like because I can put it on camera. Often I'll just run a cable and use it as like a boom and I put it on a boom pole. It works for that. It, it's just very useful all around. But the one from Deity is it's $100 less expensive and sounds close enough to not 
matter. Like it's fine. It's, it's, it sounds great and it has most of the important features. Like features that I find important is a good internal preamp so you don't have to trust whatever your camera's doing. So if there's any built-in noise, which I mean Canon preamps are notoriously a little bit noisy. So I'd rather have something additional making it sound better. Also, I, I, really important to me that it has its own internal rechargeable batteries. A lot of the Shure mics have, like they take double A's or triple A's. I can't stand that. They die faster. Uh, and then also it needs to automatically turn on and off when you plug it and unplug it because otherwise your battery is suddenly dead when you didn't expect it to. There's other options, but then you don't need a preamp. So Yeah, I was definitely going to say that that mic too. I've been testing it versus the video mic pro plus longest microphone named all of all of them are super long why don't they come up with catchy names like it should be like the road dragonfly or something i don't know just like something catchier yeah, get red cameras to name you yeah exactly exactly like helium and hydrogen and that sort of thing so that that the mic's great and it, especially at the price what they're able to accomplish at that price point is is really good and like you said having a, a shotgun mic that goes on top of a camera is super versatile because you can use it as a boom. You can, you could, you could even podcast on it if you knew like proper mic technique yeah. and like where to, I've where to, that. where to place it and things like that. So those kinds of microphones are really versatile for sure. What would you do for like lensing? I, I you know like that's a question I get, like what lens should I buy is just as common a question that I get as what camera. And I always say it depends. Like, I don't know. I, yeah. I need more information. Totally. I mean, yes, that's why it's it's good for us not to actually give a specific camera suggestion because, like, there are just too many variables by a mile um, to, to recommend one thing. I mean, and also don't assume you need full frame. We were just talking about a bunch of full frame cameras. That is not necessary. There's a lot of times where it could make a lot more sense to go micro four thirds or any variety. Um, don't assume that because full frame sounds like the best that it is be open to other ones lenses i mean my mind goes straight to a specific lens so going contrary to what i just said right now i think about like the sigma 18 to 35 1.8 i do think it should you should start with a, a zoom i know there's a lot of advice out there about or not advice but like people like primes primes are sexy they're what hollywood uses they're what uh, old school professionals use like primes have a lot of nice things about them. But if you're just getting started, you're not going to be able to do very much. You're going to be super limited by the, whichever one lens that you choose. Uh, so things about the Sigma that, that make me select it, and this is just stuff to look for in other lenses. Technically, it's amazing. It's incredibly sharp. You're never going to be let down by the image quality. You'll never A client will never be disappointed because there's too much chromatic aberration or it's a bit soft or whatever like it. It's always good enough for pretty much anything. Then it's fast. So you can get some depth of field and you can shoot in low light. You know, it doesn't have to be 1.8. That's a little faster than you really need. But I do think if you're only going to have one lens, it has to at least be 2.8. I would not have my only lens be 4.0 or slower and especially not have it be variable aperture uh, or variable aperture where, you know, that would mean that on it, it says that it's, for example, like, you know, 4.0 to 5.6. Or 3.5 to 5.6. That's a common one. I won't explain why, but you'll be frustrated by it. Uh, so yeah, I'd look for something with this uh, aperture that is all the way through the zoom range, relatively fast, and somewhere between wide and medium. Yeah, I, I love fixed lenses too. And we own a lot of fixed lenses for the Canon system, a lot of EF lenses. But for videos, 
in particular, I, I really want versatility. And if I'm going to buy my first lens to do something and I'm only going to have one lens, or if I'm, let's say I'm traveling and I'm traveling light and I'm only going to bring one lens, I'm going to bring a zoom for sure because you need the versatility. Mm-hmm. You can't say, oh, I'm just going to take a 135 on this shoot. Like, who's going to do that? Nobody. So mm-hmm. you you need a, a zoom. So, like, everyone's like 24 to 70 is like kind of the one that photographers, I think, use. But I think mm-hmm. in general with video, you're usually not shooting in super tight. Like you're usually not yeah. going past 85 unless you're using a macro or something like that or trying to get some kind of special effect or filming from the back of a room and you're doing an event. So I, I do like zooms. And that Sigma, man, I, I don't think there's a better – if I had to pick one lens, that would be like my favorite lens for sure. Yeah, the everything lens. Yeah, the everything lens. It's something that I don't know why it took so long for somebody to – I don't even think anybody explained this to me. I think I figured it out myself and I shouldn't have had to, so I'm going to tell it to whoever hasn't figured it out yet. When you're shooting video, you usually shoot wider. I mean, it's like such a simple, stupid sentence, but nobody said that to me. And I don't know why they didn't tell me. And it's, it's just really true. Like just in all situations, the frame is wider. You know, it, 16 by 9, like a standard video frame is less tall than the 4 by 6 of a photo. So you see more horizontal space. Um, and then the viewing platforms are always matching that, right? So like TVs are the same. And the world unfolds more in that space. Like you're, you're never shooting vertical. So all of the action is happening on the left and right. So you usually want to see more of it. Uh, reduces camera shake. Just so many reasons that like the same image, if you're going to capture it in stills versus video, you're probably going to move one focal length wider. So if it's something that with stills, you'd shoot it with a 50. And this, again, let's say, assume assume full frame, right? So we're in the same format if you usually would shoot it with the 50 in video you might shoot it with the 35 if you're shooting with 35 in stills you might shoot it with the 24 in in video and that's super rough that's like what i made up in my own head but i think it's true and for sure if you go crop sensor and as you actually go into more pro video equipment so i have a couple of canon c100 mark ii's that i've had for a few years and those are kind of my workhorses and you know, it crops in, it crops in 1.6. So I need to shoot with a 35 mil if I want to get about a 50 mil. And so it's just, you you just need wider lenses in general for Mm -hmm. video, especially as you even go into the pro things. Like I used to have a red Scarlet W and that had a 1.6 crop on it or whatever. So it's like putting a Sigma 18 to 35 on there or like a Canon 16 to 35 or what have you, it makes a big difference because even the pro equipment that's more expensive doesn't give you as wide of a view. So yeah, wide lenses are, are, are key for sure, I think, for video. All right, I want to also flag that. You mentioned the red there because that's part of the, I'm going to talk about the, I said we're going to talk about the Alexa. We're also going to talk about the red. We're all going to circle back to all of this in our pro part. I just want to remind myself. Okay. Let's talk about what a, you know, kind of working professional, somebody that is starting to get jobs, they are getting paid from this, they're ready to reinvest in their kit. What's a, first of all, what's it going to cost to be at that kind of medium level? Probably somewhere around 5,000 to 7,500. And where, where this kinds of like kind of creeps up is I, I really think that getting pro audio and pro lighting gear is the best long-term investment if you're going to do this as a career, because while lighting technology does change, and I actually started 
buying good lights about five years ago, right before LEDs got really good. So I still mm-hmm. own a set of Kino flows that have the fluorescent tubes and like if you dim them, they'll turn green. And like, so I still have those. I just don't use them as much anymore, but those are still good. Like that lighting technology is not that different than it was 30 years ago. Camera technology is incredibly different. And it's similar Mm -hmm. with audio. Like there's always advancements. There's always new features and things like that. But a good microphone, unless you ruin it somehow or destroy it, it's going to last 10, 20, 30 years. So if you're going to make big investments, typically lighting and audio, I think, are the best too. Because cameras change so frequently, because those things come out more often. So I, I really try to encourage people that they usually come to me with like, what camera should I buy? And I say, what's your budget? Okay, spend 50% on the camera. <laughs> And then maybe another 15 to 20 on the lens or what have you. And then spend 15 to 20% on lighting and 15 or so percent on audio. Because I think most people blow 90 plus percent of their budget on their camera and then Mm -hmm. have bad audio with bad lighting. Oh, totally. And uh, yeah, this is a good time to get into both good audio and lighting. Like suddenly, out of nowhere, it got awesome. Again, so we were talking about Deity Microphones. I'll keep them in the mix for this level. Uh, so another good one. I haven't tested it yet, but have you tried the S? Do you know remember what it's called? S two S S mic two. I think yes, that's the one. So and that's like a external shotgun mm-hmm. mic that is made to be quite similar to the uh, Sennheiser MKH four one something four six eight maybe yeah something like yeah, that. The yeah. One, the one that your favorite YouTubers use and Hollywood uses. Um, so they made a, a much more affordable, great mic that uh, will sound pretty similar. But then going back to Aperture uh, lighting, man, I am just so grateful that Aperture exists. Like you, you totally can shop around. There are other companies making good stuff, especially you know if you're looking for tubes. Quasar Science is an awesome company, but Aperture for like getting um, either little small like hand holdable LEDs are fantastic. Or you can get bigger single light sources like the 120D where you can easily add softboxes or do like traditional light modification stuff. You know, it can scale up to literally any kind of set. Like it could be very at home in Hollywood. I'm just so grateful that, so basically I didn't start investing as much when you did. I bought a kit of cheaper LEDs and they were terrible. I was so unhappy with them. They were super magenta. I could see the shadows cast by each point of light. Each LED. Like it wasn't quite soft enough. Each diode yeah. had its own oh, shadow. God. Awful. Like, it really didn't look nice. And it didn't match daylight and everything. It's so many things. Thankfully, I didn't spend a lot on them. Whereas, you know, your kinos, they're still going to look great in 20 years. Like, you, you can keep using them, even if they are a, maybe a little less convenient, you know, worst case. But yeah, there's there's some really great options now. So yeah, I, I love my aperture lights. Uh, I have a 120D, and then I also have an LS1, which is more of a panel, and that's just like a little bit mm-hmm. more travel friendly. I usually use that for filling ambient. So use use the 120D for my key light, or I actually just got the space light attachment, which is just like this. Yeah, it's nice. I don't know. It's kind of like a China ball, but it's like a better collapsible one that lasts longer been using that lately to just light spaces and actually light 
my podcast interviews and videos that I've been doing lately that I'm about to publish on my YouTube channel. So I, I love those lights. Uh, they just, they're thoughtful, they're bright, and the light is consistent, which has always been my frustration with LEDs is magenta or green tints to them. And so, yeah, I love the aperture lights. I also have some Westcott Flex lights. Those are really great too. Ooh, those look great. Because they're so small. Like you could stack two or three of them in the size of a laptop. And so when I'm traveling uh, long distances or I want to pack light, I'll take a couple of those and those put out a ton of light, a ton of consistent light that you can dial exactly in. And I think that's where the real benefit of LEDs comes from nowadays is my Kino flows. It's like if I want them to be less bright, I have to cut it down with more things. Yeah. Like I have to put things in front of it or bounce it off of walls or ceilings or what have you. And LED lights, it's like you turn them on, you get behind your camera, use a remote control to like get the exact exposure that you want and it stays consistent. So yeah, it's it's a good time to invest in lighting, I think. Cameras? I mean, I'm going to get a little specific for, for one suggestion. I like the a7 III, especially because it's great price. I mean, it's doing things that much more expensive cameras were doing previously. And it's it, there's relatively no compromises compared to everything else that is $1,000 or more expensive. Um, like the compromises are, pr- are pretty minimal. And then uh, there's there's other options in that range of like the you know GH5 or get a GH4. I don't know. What do you play with in that range? Yeah, I think I came to I came to this at a at an interesting time where when I started doing video and my wife started her photography business, uh, the five D Mark III had just came out, and so that was like, you know, the next iteration of the camera that changed everything. And it's like, well, we got to buy two of these, right? So we bought two of them, and <laughs> then you know, a few years into it, and about when I was starting my production company is twenty fourteen, and I was like, uh. I just like this is a little soft. Like the video is just a little soft. I'd love something a little better and a little crisper. And so I actually decided to go Canon Canon Cinema line. And so I got C100s, and I still use those today, four years later. And because what I do client wise personally is ninety seven percent video. My wife runs photo, and so we have separate cameras for separate gigs that we do separately. And then when we're together, booked for the same thing, she uses the 5Ds and I use my Canon and we share lenses. I use my cinema line. So I think that if you're only going to do video, invest in a video-only camera. But if you're going to do stills and video, like hybrid is totally the way to go. Like if I did more photo work right now or – I was starting from scratch. I would get a hybrid camera because I don't think you need a video only camera anymore. They're just the hybrids like an A7 III are just so good that them being small, them being able to do both is just worth it. I film a lot of things that like are long. So long podcasts or events or what have you. And so Sometimes I just need to be able to roll the camera for more than 30 minutes, which is like one well, of my let's biggest Let's qualify that yeah. real quick. Like what are the important things? So camera record lengths, which I just – I never run into them because that's not something I end up producing. Mm-hmm. Like I've – in all the times that I'm like, oh, I really wish I had a camera that ran longer, I still just don't – I so few times I run into situations where like, oh, I actually, actually need that right now. And it's just what I happen to have you know, built is like here's my product offering. 
So that's one thing to consider. Another is onboard audio. It really can be a pain. Like it, you don't want to start stacking cameras on top of preamps. Like I, I never do it. I don't like doing it. So if you're running a single preamp shotgun mic, like we were mentioning before, like the the Deity or the Rode Video Mic Pro or whatever, that's kind of the ideal setup for these hybrid cameras. And it's usually how I'm working with it with the A7 III, which is my, my main video camera right now. Or you can, you know, record your audio externally and sync it. Again, not not great. I hate doing that. So that's a good time to get a dedicated camera like C100, C200, C300, um, where you can plug directly into it. You can record high-quality audio immediately. And then what's the other thing? Oh, built-in NDs. Oh, I, yes. I hate not having – every camera needs NDs. Like it's just pure misery switching screw-on filters. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. So, which to me, I'm really excited about the EOS R and it having like the ND filter attachment yeah, thing. So smart. It's very, very smart to to put it in front of the lens, so you don't have to deal with the the screwing on. But I, I do just take it for granted that a, a cinema line camera, like a Panasonic EVA one or a Sony FS five or seven or the the Canons that we've been talking about, have the NDs in them. That when I go to film on I don't know, an ADD or a, a EOS R, like a mirrorless mm-hmm. camera or something, and being like, oh, I can't do this. Like, what? I just mm-hmm. I need like two stops or four stops or six stops. Like, when I go from outside to inside or vice versa, it's, it's a, it's definitely a benefit. And I am now like just moving towards like, what's the easiest thing for me to use? And mm-hmm. that came from, I shot on DSLRs and then I wanted better audio. So then I had to buy an audio thing. And then I was like, what if I just use one thing that has both of these together? And so mm-hmm. I bought C100s. And then I, I swung way past that. And that's when I bought a RED and I wanted to shoot at higher resolution and wanted to be more of like a cinematographer and do work like that. But eventually I didn't need it. And it was more work to have a more expensive, fancier camera that didn't have XLR inputs and didn't have autofocus. And, you know, oh, totally, so yeah. you can like swing way too far in the other direction too. So there is that sweet spot of what can my camera do well? What do I actually need it to do? And just focus on doing the doing the work, getting, getting the job done or, or creating your art instead of focusing on the gear too much. This episode is brought to you by Cronaby Watches, makers of premium, beautiful, timeless connected watches. I'm willing to bet that at various points in your life, you've come across a watch or seen somebody wearing one and you've thought, man, that's a beautiful watch. I am jealous. I would love to have that watch for myself. It just looks great. It looks great with what they're wearing. It looks great with their face, everything about it. But I'm willing to bet most of the time it wasn't a digital watch. It wasn't a black screen strapped onto the wrist that they need to rotate it just to see what time it is. Not that there's anything wrong with those watches. I mean, I enjoy them too, but there's really something to be said for a a real watch, (laughs) a watch with hands made out of mechanical parts with metal dials and that at a glance, you can always see what time it is and everybody can see that you have enough taste to be wearing something beautiful. So this is where Cronaby steps in. They have all of the connected features that you would expect in a smartwatch in 2019. So you can get notifications, most importantly, uh, from, you know, texts and phone calls and configure them however you want. But you can also do stuff like trigger your camera, play pause music, all these smart features that lots of other devices can do that don't look nearly as good as a Chronobi watch. So 
go to cronaby.com, check out what they have, take a look at some photos, and also go look at them on Instagram. There's, see if you dig back a little bit, you can find some photos of me that they posted there. Go like them, say hello. That's K-R-O-N-B-Y. And thanks again to Cronaby for supporting the show. To round out the mid-level kit, let's pick, let's pick a few lenses. You know, you want to keep it relatively simple, keep it cheap. We're trying to make the whole thing definitely under seven or eight grand. Uh, you know, I'd still take a look at that Sigma. It's it's going to go right to the top. Like, if bottom to top, that Sigma 18 to 35 is great. You know, whatever brand you're in, look at their best zoom lenses. Um, you know, I really dislike cheap zoom lenses. Cheap primes can look pretty good. They can be very usable. People won't really notice the difference. The cheapest zooms usually look like hot garbage. And I would say be careful <laughs> and generally stay away. So, you know, in, in Canon's world, that's like L-series um, class that, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get too specific, but I, I think the best place to start is with a range of a couple of zooms and, um, you know, maybe one really fast prime. Like if you didn't get that 18 to 35, let's say you got, uh, you know, maybe you got like a 16 to 35 2.8 and a 24 to 70, then you might want to round it out with like uh, what's fast and cheap actually. Nothing's, oh, like um, Sigma's, you know, like a 35 1.4 or something like that. Yeah, I think I think in a similar way where, and to me, we've bought enough lenses that this decision comes down to when we're packing to, to go on a shoot or go on a trip or what have you to do some work. And it's like, okay, I have fixed lenses at 35, 50, 85, 100, 135, but maybe I just need the 24 to 105 for this shoot because like mm-hmm. it's good enough. Like I can shoot at F4, it's going to be stabilized and that's, that's all I need. So I think if you're, if you're looking to choose what to invest in, what to buy, maybe you can do a little both of zoom and prime. So an 18 to 35 or a 16 to 35 is great. It's going to get you your wides. Maybe it's going to be at one eight if it's a Sigma or two eight or something, if it's Sony or Canon or whatever other brand, and then maybe you get a 50 prime. And then maybe you get a 70 to 200 or something. What's the widest lens you need to own? Like, depends what you do, depends, depends, but... For the longest time, 24 was the widest I had. On a crop sensor? 24 on a full frame. But but I do find when I, w- I want 16 mil on a full frame, which is, you know, which is like putting a 10 mil on, on a crop frame. So I, I, I still pack because it's so lightweight and so cheap. I throw a 10 to 18 in my bag all the time, an EFS lens, right. because sometimes yeah. I just need that super wide 16 mil establishing shot or what have you behind the scenes shot or something like that. So I do like to have 16 as, as the widest on full frame. Yeah, I do. I keep that around for my Sony as well, which for me becomes my like vlogging lens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do yeah. 10 to 10 to 18 4.0. And then, but I would say that in normal life, 24 usually will get you by uh, on a full frame. And for photography, a, a lot of the time, all I have is the 24 to 70, and I'm never wishing I had wider. It's fine. You eventually will want to own something wider, but you can probably buy under 24. Yeah, for sure. I would say if I was to buy three lenses, it would be 16 to 35, a 50 mil, and then maybe a 70 to 200. Like that would be a mm-hmm. good fit because then you would have one prime that could be like a bread and butter in the center like 50 mil i use a lot of times when i'm just on a tripod filming somebody to get enough bokeh but i'm not you know too zoomed in but then you have you have range on either side that would that would kind of be the the three i would choose 
All right, let's get to the fun stuff. Let's talk about <laughs> big big cameras, big gear, you know, the goals that we, uh, the hashtag goals we have as filmmakers and the things I like to watch video comparisons of. So here, I'm going to, I'm going to send you a, a, a link okay. and there will be a screenshot of this in the show notes. So to see what we're talking about, refer to the link. Is this the test you just shot? Yeah. Okay, so you've got the video. I'm just going to put like a screenshot in the, in the notes. But basically, we yeah, we were shooting an Alexa Mini and a Canon C200. And it, it wasn't meant to be a shootout. We weren't like, it wasn't all about comparing them. I wanted to get an opportunity to talk just more about cinema cameras. Because for me, I, I'm always going to keep a little bit of my bucket list open to, I want an Alexa of my own. Like I just, I know it's not a good idea in most ways, but it's a, a fun thing for me to shoot for. Like, it's kind of unattainable. I mean, they're $100,000. It's very hard to make that work within a business, but they're beautiful. The, I mean, the image that comes out of it is really unique. I, I really like them. But this was a good chance to compare these these two cameras. And there's uh, an incredible article I mention on this podcast all the time, and I think about it every time I shoot anything, by Steve Yedlin, who is the DP of the, well, currently the most recent Star Wars film and many other good movies. And he knows a lot about color science and the article's on color, called On Color Silence. And he compares a bunch of film stocks to uh, each other and Alexa and red footage. And the point of it, and the, the thing I think about all the time, is that he's able to yield the almost exact same results out of all these different sources. Because what's most important is knowing what you want out of your film, out of your sensor, out of the data that's being collected by any super high quality camera that is is basically as long as it's collecting everything that you throw at it, and you're you know it's it's capturing the full range of highlights to shadows, you can kind of manipulate it to look like anything. So the thing I was just trying to prove to myself in this test is that in a few minutes, me, an unqualified colorist that doesn't know what the hell I'm doing and has never worked with either of these cameras before. I feel like I was able to get these two cameras, one costing $10,000 and one costing $100,000. Uh, well, you know, once it's kitted with the Alexa, you need you need to add enough stuff to look pretty much the same. You know, like there, there isn't an important difference that I can see, but I don't know. You tell me, do you see an important difference in these two images? Yeah. Can you tell me which of the two is which now that I've looked at them? <laughs> no, like, because I, I think yeah. I know, but I want to make sure. So the camera one is from the Canon. Mm-hmm. Camera two is the Alexa. And there's other things to note about it. Like, don't look at sharpness, for example, because it was the Alexa was using an anamorphic lens, so it's cropped in a little bit more, and it had a filter in front of it. So there's just things that made the Alexa a little less sharp because of the circumstances and is not a measure of the sensor. It, this is just about the color. Gotcha. And I was, and I was going to say I could tell which was which because of those things. Like, because mm-hmm. I could tell that the C200 is always in focus because you guys were probably using <laughs> autofocus. Like totally. that was a giveaway exactly, for me. Yeah. Whereas the Alexa, like as the models move forward and back, like they go a little soft. I can see the blooming in uh, mm-hmm. the the sequins in the dresses are blooming more on the Alexa, having that kind of glimmer glass feel to it. Like you said, being being softer, a little bit more cinematic and not as clinical and sharp as the C200. But yeah, color for sure. Like, no difference to me. No difference to me yeah. on this end. No important difference. Right. I'm sure yeah. a colorist sitting in front of the $30,000 Black Magic panel and dropping nodes and making changes, there's more information there. 
but mm-hmm. for someone coloring a video in Premiere or Final Cut, they're the same. So I, I think it's just a good lesson to walk away with. And um, also to think about with photography, people never think about this with photography. They're always talking about like, oh yeah, Canon color science versus Sony. Like Sony sucks. Canon's the best. I'm sick of that, uh, honestly. Like, whoever wants to do whichever yeah. one. It's like these raw files have everything you need. You don't appreciate, we don't, I don't, not you, but like <laughs> we all collectively do not appreciate how much data is sitting inside those raw files. And if your colors aren't the way you want, it's because you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> it's not that challenging to get them looking very similar. Yeah, I, I have to imagine that people that that complain about that or say that are either A, so stuck in their biases that they're not willing to like have tried another camera and try to edit it. Or B, they must shoot JPEG and not edit their photos yeah. or something. Like exactly, and this this is different for video because in video mm-hmm. it's it's pre compressed. You know, for these DSLRs, you will see much more of a difference. And in that case, the Canon color becomes a little more useful. But but I feel like at at this point and in, in early 2019, like any camera that's come out recently, color science is incredible. I don't know of a camera that has failed at that. I feel like all the companies are either buying the same sensor from Sony and putting them in their camera or yeah. or they've figured out the color science to a level where e- even if you're shooting in a regular profile, you just have to make slight adjustments. And I think that's just part of being a creative is knowing your tool that you're using, knowing its weakness, and, and making adjustments. And that's like back to what we were talking about lights, of them being a little magenta or a little green or or what have you. It's like you can still use them. That just maybe in post you have to you mm-hmm. have to slide you have to slide the tint a little bit or what have you, but or gel them in real life, yeah, or That's gel them and fix them at that point. So it's a matter of color science or that sort of thing. I think it's it's always fixable. It's always fixable in photo and it's fixable in video, and it's just a matter of learning how to do it. And this circles back to your point of that you had a red for a little while and you didn't keep it because. I think a lot of people would predict that if we were at this point, we're talking about like, look, at the very high end, you want the best of the best. What camera are you going to choose? This is the obvious choice seems like, oh yeah, you're going to either go area or, or red. Like that's it, right? That's the top of the line. So many situations, that doesn't make sense. That is a, a very, you can back yourself into a lot of corners. So I just told you I still want an Alexa someday. <laughs> you got your dream camera and you sold it. Um, how did that, How did that happen and how did it go? So how it happened originally getting it was business was going really well. We had a lot of extra cash flow, um, had a surplus of that. And I'm the type of person that's like going to reinvest in the company, reinvest in gear and equipment and, and make Double down. what I can, yeah, make what I can make better, which to me partially was resolution. Partially it was sh- being able to shoot in red raw and color science. Here we go again, but being able to shoot in raw enabling me to have more flexibility in post to use LUTs and things that people have made that are based on red raw to get certain looks and things like that. And I wanted to also kind of have this legitimacy of like being able to do different kind of work, kind of breaking out from the work that I was doing. But the thing I didn't do was start to network with agencies and start to get that kind of work. So after a year or so of having a red shooting on a red I, it didn't change my business. It didn't like impact my business at all. It creatively, it impacted me. I, I enjoyed 
the files once they're on my computer is definitely more frustrating to shoot with a red uh, by myself running and gunning or even with one or two people helping me because I have to run separate audio. There's no autofocus, like all the reasons it's bigger, it's heavier. The batteries only last uh, an hour. So it just wasn't making a difference in my business. And that was to me a point of like, okay, I should sell this thing while I can still get what it's mostly worth. And so that was what I decided. Wow. That's, I mean, it's depressing. Uh, well, I still have my goal of getting a camera like this someday. But I, I mean, I totally understand what you're saying. I, I really do get it. Especially the part about acknowledging, like, what is the business that you run and what is best for that business. I mean, if tomorrow I bought a camera that had no autofocus, it'd be a huge challenge. It'd mean that a lot of shots that right now are trivial for me, are very simple to get. I need to think about a lot harder, and some of them I wouldn't get. Sometimes I w- I'd miss a lot more shots. Yeah, you take things for granted, like being able to walk in front of the camera and it find you. Or or being able to lift your camera in the air for more than five minutes without being completely exhausted. Yeah, exactly. And it happened, I was filming this uh, Tesla Model 3 video with my friend. He was he was trying to decide if he wanted a Model 3 or a Model S, and so he he rented a Model 3 pretty early, like before a lot of people had them. And so we were filming this video and I was like, I want to film it on my red because it's like, Ooh, it's a model three. It's Tesla. It's beautiful. Like let's do it in the best resolution possible. And like filming that video outdoors, cause it's a car. So I'm not like next to an outlet all the time and like having to use extension cables. So, cause like keeping my camera on because I didn't have enough batteries and like that was the first moment of like, mm-hmm. maybe I don't need this camera and I shouldn't be using it. And then we shot the other part of the video uh, for the Model S like a few days later. And I was like, I'm going to use a, I'm going to use a DSLR for this part. And it was just so much easier. Oh gosh. Mm-hmm. It was just so much easier to, to film, to hold out the camera in front of me, to use autofocus. And I think there's diminishing returns when it comes to having these higher end cameras. Like, I, I love gear. I love seeing seeing House of Cards or Mr. Robot shot on red. I love put on IMAX and 65 mil and stuff like that. But like, I don't need to be doing that. I don't yeah. need to own that camera, even if it's fun. A really ex- interesting example for me was when I was shooting with Jonathan Morrison for the video that we did together. He has access to all the cameras we're talking about. You know, he he can walk out and, and choose any of these any day because he's a he's a goddamn pro. And uh, what he was shooting with us was the a7 III. It was just like, that was what felt right for him that day. And it was much easier to stick on a gimbal and kind of run and gun with and, and was super simple. And, you know, there was a there was a red on set that they, they were shooting something else with the red earlier in that day. But like, it's not always the the best camera isn't always the best camera. You know, it's it, it's really funny that way. I mean, there's things about, so as we get closer to talking about our dream kit, there's things about the the cameras I use that do really frustrate me. So, you know, I've been on Sony as my primary video cameras for a few years now. So the, the path was uh, 5D Mark II, then 5D Mark III, and they really frustrated me. There was a, a lot of limitations. And moving over to the A7R II was fantastic for Sony. Like there, there, are, the fact that it could do 1080 slow motion, the S-Log on it giving 
ability to have more dynamic range, even though a lot of the time I'd shoot in uh, picture profile six. That's still what most of my YouTube videos are in. Um, th- there's all these things about Sony that just work very, very well and are kind of, they were more forward thinking about what was happening with video. Now I'm using the a7 III, this camera that I, I like quite a bit, but um, S-Log really falls apart. Uh, you know, when you grade it, you got to be so careful. Like you have to expose it right. And even if you do, the gradients in, uh, I mean, I've got some examples from the last shoot last week where I know the client's not really going to notice it, but I see these big macro blocky chunks in the walls and I'm like, that's not good. That should not be in a, a professional video. It, it's, it really frustrates me. And I know I did everything right, but like the camera let me down because its data rate, data rate isn't high enough for S-Log. And if you are shooting the other picture profiles, you're you're not getting you're getting a lot less dynamic range. Then you really start to see how much more these you know kind of dedicated video cameras like C200. Um, I don't know the dynamic range of C100s, uh, but pretty similar. I mean, they have Canon Log, not Canon Log three, which is on C200s and 300s and stuff like right. that. But and and they don't have the potential of shooting. So I mean, I imagine it being like better files of what the 5D Mark IV looks like. Like, w- just way higher data rates and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Higher higher bit rates, just a little bit more dynamic range shooting in log. But, I mean, I'm still shooting 8-bit files in Canon C100 Mark II, and I get frustrated, too, when I shoot on a, a solid background and I see, yeah, the macro blocking and and that sort of thing and the gradients, and, and that stuff frustrates me. And I think I just got to this this like ceiling of of like what really matters to me and like i i still do want to shoot in 10 bit like i'd love to shoot in 14 bit mm-hmm. you know they'd be great mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but at this point today it's like i'm going to use the equipment i have and focus on making stuff that i need to make and then in a year it can we can have a discussion about upgrading or something like i think you just have to every once in a while stop spending money on on equipment because it's so easy to keep doing because companies keep coming out with new stuff and people on the internet talk about it and so (laughs) sorry no no like i'm i'm guilty of it too i i I (laughs) do gear reviews as well so i think that from time to time you just have to be like i'm not spending any money right now or i will upgrade this part of my kit now or i will not do that for this year and i think that's just like something as a business owner you need to do sometimes so you don't spend all the money you make from your clients so at this higher level you're running a real company you want to be responsible with your spending mm-hmm. but let's you know pretend we're both at a clean slate we don't know anything right now what are we spending i mean most of the the great cameras in this range i mean i would call it around 10,000 uh, a lot of them are a little bit less like maybe even 2,000 less a lot of the great cameras that you know are more or less no compromise cameras are, are going to be sitting there, and that makes me think of the Canon C two hundred or Sony FS seven. Or I mean, yeah, you were listing a moment ago the Panasonic Evo one. Mm-hmm. The name, yeah. What am I missing? Uh, I mean, those are the three main ones. You're probably going to get most people using those in that price range in the sub ten thousand. You know, C three hundred Mark two or C two hundred. If you're just doing web stuff, C200, great camera. If you're doing broadcast, you're probably going to need a C300 Mark II. But does the C100, who does the C100 still make sense for buy, buying it new? Like if you don't need higher resolution, C100 Mark II, great. 1080p, if you deliver everything 1080p, great camera. 
as a 4K mm-hmm. sensor. It's clean. It still looks nice. I think it still holds up against most hybrid cameras that shoot 4K. I could upscale to 4K on my C100 Mark II, and it looks better than like some Sony 4K mm-hmm. cameras. So yeah, like Super 35 Sony is a little fuzzy. Yeah. So so I think it's still a great it's still a great camera, and it's still my workhorse. I have two of them right now, and if I had to buy a new camera for video and upgrade. I think I would go to C200 and that's probably as far as I would go just for usability. Mm-hmm. Like having had a red and putting $25,000 into a camera before selling it, I could have had 3 C200s like for, for the same yeah. for the same yeah. price and I would have had face tracking autofocus, built-in NDs, XLRs and I still could shoot raw. You know, like getting raw oh, out yeah. of cameras nowadays if you want to invest in the memory cards to be able to do that in the hard drive space you can do that on these sub ten thousand dollar cameras so i think unless you're in the industry meaning commercial or television or something like that where you need to be at that alexa or red level uh, because the client is asking for it or netflix is asking for it unless you're at that level you're doing stuff for YouTube, you're doing stuff for clients and just stuff that goes on the internet and on websites, you probably don't need to spend more than $10,000 on a camera, I don't think. Do you ever get frustrated that your clients aren't more particular about the camera you use? Because I am. Like, all the jobs I get, like, I like the jobs I get. I like my clients. I like the projects I do. I like my work. But I really wish they would care a little bit more about what we're shooting on. I mean, my wife is good at, like, reining me in for this because I'm like, you know, I really feel like we need something legitimate like something professional and she's like when has anybody asked for this (laughs) and it's kind of true like and this is comes back to what i was talking about earlier the difference between going straight to company like working with an agency versus directly with a brand they a lot of the time they're not as sure about what they need and like what the differences of different cameras really are yeah i don't think that most clients know what you're using or why i think there was definitely that time when I when I had a red when I would show up with a red and people were like I've never seen one before, mm-hmm. or they wanted to like look at it or like see how it works or something like that because it looks so different. Like it has yeah. a big screen on it. It looks like just how they style yeah, it, it cool. and stuff like that. It's cool. Like you want it, you want to try it out. But then when I saw myself using a red in situations where like why do I have a red? Like why do why am I <laughs> filming mm-hmm. this specific video that? People are going to watch on their phones or, you know, so it, it, it came down to a little bit of an, an ego thing of like, I I probably don't need to be shooting on this, even though I love the other things that I consume that are shot at this resolution or with this kind of camera. So it just became a became an ego thing, I think, for me. I think the rest of the, the kit are kind of just scaling up other things we already talked about, like. You know, we probably mentioned a lot of the good lenses. You're just going to want a few more of them. Lighting, kind of same deal. You know, I I still think uh, aperture is a really like great place to be. Just get a few more, maybe get a brighter one, get some more light modifiers. Yeah, for lighting, for me, as as you go up in budget, it becomes the non sexy things like having stands that can help you place lights in certain ways that are safe. Yeah, and yeah. like modifying light and sandbags and for audio that might be like. Not necessarily the electronic stuff, but like sound blankets and other things that can help modify or or what have you, or like 
better headphones or you know like the things that aren't the the first step like the microphone the camera the light but it's all like the modifying accessory things that that start to add up and that's why i don't think the budget levels we set were were like too high because for every stand i have it has to go in a roller bag for every like camera and lens kit like i need to have a, a case to like carry it in and so Right. It, stuff just starts to add up and you memory cards and batteries and like there's so many accessories that like it just becomes more expensive as you get into this and I, I just encourage people to keep it minimal and sell things they don't use that was something i did at the it was like fall last year after i sold my red there were just like other pieces of gear that i thought i wanted like a like a jib or a certain gimbal or things like that that I just I wasn't using and they were just taking up space and so I literally eBayed $4000 worth of stuff and I was nice. like I don't want this anymore I don't need it I don't use it yeah I have a few of those right now yeah actually that reminds me that we did skip over gimbals uh, which I think do come like I think in the in that midsection you need to start looking at something to give smooth smooth motion to your camera not that you need to move your camera all the time but clients have come to expect the ability to do it because it's a popular look. Uh, so without going into the details of why you would or wouldn't move your camera, I think yeah, in that mid-level, you at least need a slider. I don't think you have to have a gimbal. Also, the difference of use is gimbals are great for bigger motions. If you are making a smaller motion, it can be very hard to mm-hmm. control a gimbal the way you would think. Like You think like, oh yeah, it's it's moving smoothly in the air, so I'll just move my hand from left to right. And once you watch the footage, you're like, oh, it's bouncing but up and that down. speed yeah. is not steady yeah. at all. And yeah, it went up and down. Uh, it's it's very hard to do slider motions with the gimbal. Do you have a favorite slider that you use right now? I don't own a slider right now. I've had Cinovate stuff before, mm-hmm. and I rent the Rhino occasionally for YouTube stuff. Mm-hmm. But I don't own one right now, not for any good reason, just because I've been putting it off. I bought a bigger Kessler one that's like three feet long years ago and and the second shooter and so i can do like those kinds of really methodical kind of slow mm-hmm. slider shots but i but i leave it at home every almost every single time because it's huge yeah. and it's time it's consuming to set up and stuff like that so i really only use it for like home studio kind of youtube stuff that's what it's the most useful to, for me mm-hmm. for and like especially why i like that rhino because it has a fully um, motorized head, and I can program moves into it. So I can say, when you're on the far right, angle towards the left, so you're looking at the product. And it's like, okay, lock that in. Then I move it all the way to the other side of the slider, and I say, okay, now aim the camera towards the product again, and now that's your ending point. Now just move back and forth between that a few times, faster, slower. Great, now I have this perfect shot, just super well-controlled. And for products... It's amazing. It's it's really helpful. But I don't yeah, I don't like to carry it around. I don't like to bring it places. And it becomes a little less useful as the scale of your subject goes up. So, you know, if you're shooting a car, the visibility of the movement, you need to move farther for that to be useful. So then a gimbal starts becoming more important. So it's yeah, I kind of find like at home in studio, that's when a slider is always more valuable, but out in the field, a gimbal becomes more practical. Yeah, I agree. I I, I think that my favorite slider kind of innovation thing I've seen is Edelkrone has this one where it locks right on top of your tripod and it can mm-hmm. lock into like a stable place, but it slides side to side really smoothly, even with really heavy cameras. 
so that was something I saw at NAB last year, and I was like, that would be really valuable because it's it's the size of a camera, but it mm-hmm. is a slider, and it like makes enough movement. And then for gimbals, I think the Ronin S is probably the best one oh, right now. By far. Yeah, by far. I, I had the Moza Air before, and I've tried the Zion Crane, and just they all feel like toys now. They all feel like just steps leading towards the Ronin S. I agree, yeah. Did we miss anything? Any gear-related things? I mean, I can th- I can think of one thing that we missed. Go for it. The SwitchPod. Oh, yeah. SwitchPod. That was missed. So I have this dream that, like, uh, when people listen to this podcast, this episode, two years from now, they'll be like, why wasn't this whole episode about the thing that Caleb is famous for, the SwitchPod? I mean, I mean, it's starting to trend towards that based on how the campaign's been doing the first two days, but yeah. So first tell us what it is. So SwitchPod is a tripod that we made basically for for vlogging, for being able to hold a camera out in front of yourself, film yourself, and then set it down quickly into a tripod. Yeah, and it looks very sexy. I mean, it's beautifully designed. It looks like it's very well made. I haven't held one yet, so I, uh, I'm going to have to take your word for it. But I love the fact that you did this, that you uh, went off and like made, made a thing. Yeah, and I mean, as we've been talking through this episode, this isn't like what I do. I don't like make, I don't like make products or things, <laughs> but but I am someone that's, done photo and video stuff for over five years and have used gear and equipment and get annoyed by by things and one of the most annoying things was anytime i wanted to to vlog or hold the camera out in front of me uh was was to use a a bendy kind of tripod thing it did the job but it like wasn't made for that and that always kind of frustrated me and so i was at a video conference called vid summit and I turned to to my friend and someone that's a client of mine also, Pat Flynn, and I was like, dude, there's got to be a better way. Like, people are just modifying this Gorillapod thing to, to to vlog with it. And Yeah, it's a hack. It's a hack. Yeah, it's – the Gorillapod is amazing at certain things. Like, it's completely adjustable. If you want to wrap it around things, it's great for that. But for vlogging and then switching into, like, just setting your camera down – it, it's not great for that. So that's where we kind of came up with the idea. It's almost worse at setting it down. Like that's the worst moment is when I try to balance it so often it flops over. Yeah. And it, it falls over and breaks things. And mm-hmm. like how many times in a Casey Neistat vlog have you seen the camera fall over and he leaves it in <laughs> I love the, because it's funny. There was one yeah. where somebody wrote in complaining. They were like, like, why do you do this? Cause uh, you know, these cameras are expensive and it's just frustrating for us to see your expensive cameras you falling. Like, you're just yeah. doing it for comedic effect. He's like, look, do you know how many times I put a camera down in a day? And he did like a super cut of all the falls. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so that's kind of where the idea came from. And then basically been working on it for 14 or 15 months now privately for about seven months as we got some designs and got it functioning and filed for a utility patent. And then from there, we showed it to a bunch of people at VidCon, got some feedback, uh, went to a couple more conferences, getting feedback from creators, people that YouTube and make videos and made modifications from there. And then over the past month or so have been kind of figuring out how do we launch this thing? How do we take enough product photography photos of it and make animated GIFs that explain why it is so good at what it could be used for and and that sort of thing and then and then launched it, you know, just over two days ago. Well, so, you know, by the time people hear this, who knows where it'll be, but like where should they go to check it out? Yeah, you can go to switchpod.co. Right now that redirects to the Kickstarter campaign. 
that's still live, but in the future that'll probably go to a store or wherever else you can you can order it. Yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, it's got to feel good to be able to use kit that you made. Yeah, it's fun to just have someone hold it for the first time or use it for the first time. You know, the, the campaign has kind of exploded in the first couple of days here, due in part partially to Peter McKinnon making a video about it, which I'm entirely grateful for. And that just kind of came about from we got a chance to show it to him a couple months back at a conference in like five minutes. And he jokingly was like, can I just have this one? Like, can I just turn and walk <laughs> away with it? And I was like, no, that's our only one, but we'll make you one. And so we made him one and the timing just kind of worked out with the campaign and everything. So it's just been fun to Man, that's awesome. to make something for people like Peter or Casey and and to have them enjoy it. So it's it's been fun. Yeah, and that the value in it is just like it's visible right away. As soon as you start like moving it around, it's you see, you're like, oh, I get it. Like I get how I would use this. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Did I miss anything, Caleb? No, I don't think so. I think we covered a lot. I think it's a good episode. Yeah, I I think it's a great episode. I think it's such a great episode. You should send it to a friend. (laughs) Choose your favorite filmmaker and send it their way because hopefully they'll appreciate it. And uh, don't be afraid to leave reviews. Where can people find you and and your work and and not just the SwitchPod? I'm Caleb Wojcik on all platforms. And my last name is spelled W-O-J-C-I-K. Cool. Thanks again. Thanks. 